morning, everyone. Uh, my name is John, if you don't know me, and it's a great uh, pleasure, privilege of mine to share God's Word with you today. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10 together. Now then, <clears throat> the book of Acts tells the exciting story of the earliest church, as we've been seeing, the earliest church as an unstoppable force growing every day, seeing conversions, seeing amazing healings and miracles, despite the severest of opposition. Jesus said that angels rejoice in heaven every time one sinner repents and comes to faith in Jesus. So just think of all the fun. Think of all the partying up there in heaven as all this story of the early chapters of Acts unfolded. It must have been insane up there, 24-7, I think. But spare a thought, if you will, for how this relentless advance of the gospel must have gone down in the corridors of hell. See, at the cross, Jesus dies, he says it's over, and Satan thinks he is strangled the movement, the Jesus movement at birth. But just as Satan is toasting his victory at the cross, Jesus rises from the dead. And like a Formula One champion, he opens this massive Jeroboam of kingdom of God champagne and he sprays it all over hell. And he says, take that, you suckers. And after drying off, Satan says, well, okay, I lost that one, but his followers aren't up to much. If I target them, they'll just run off like before. But by this time, of course, the disciples have all been baptized in the Holy Spirit and they aren't like they were before. They're made of stronger stuff now. You can beat them up, you can lock them up, you can tell them to shut up, but it just makes them all the more fired up. And so even more people get saved. And so Satan has to go back to the drawing board again. Maybe, he says, I can destroy the church from within by infecting it with deceit and lies. But that just backfires as well. See, two verses after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it says this, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. (laughs) Right, says Satan, let's kill one of them. Let's actually kill Stephen, which he does. But this Uh, persecution, it simply thrusts thousands of Christians out of Jerusalem into the surrounding towns. And so now Satan, instead of fighting just one church, he's got a whole network of churches in his entree as the kingdom continues to advance. This time, Satan is really, really ticked off. I know, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll get Saul of Tarsus on my side. He's an absolute nutcase, Saul of Tarsus. He will will turn the tide for us in the kingdom of hell. But even Saul gets converted and becomes the most productive evangelist and church planter of them all. So Satan, by this time, is going absolutely berserk down in hell. This is just not working, he says. And so he gets the whole of hell, all the demons together. They have a massive brainstorming session, and they come up with a new strategy. From now on, they say, we're going to concentrate all our demonic resources on limiting the spread of this vermin to just 0.2% of the world's population. 
the Jews. We'll just keep it Jewish. If we can make sure it stays Jewish, then the other 99.8% of the world's population will be ours forever. So Satan's last resort is to ensure that Christianity stays as a minority Jewish faction. And that brings us, brothers and sisters, to Acts chapter 10. So let's read this together. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. At about noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Let's pray. 
Lord, we've been singing this morning, Saviour, you can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. And as Father, as we come together this morning as your people, maybe there are things that are preoccupying us today. Finances, paying the bills, health, problems at work, problems in the family. All these mountains, Lord, you are mighty to move them and you're mighty to say, we just bring these before you now and ask that you'd help us now to focus on you and your word to us. And Lord, our desire is that we should encounter you as we hear what you have to say to us. So open our hearts, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Lead us into all truth. Set us free, Lord, to serve you and love you with all our heart, with all our lives. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a sip of water. <clears throat> all that singing has made me quite hoarse. <clears throat> when Neil Armstrong became the first human being to walk on the moon in July 1969, he said, as I'm sure everybody here knows, that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. And it was uh, a remarkable milestone, wasn't it, in human exploration? But special as it undoubtedly was, what we've just read here in Acts chapter 10 together is far more significant than the lunar landings in eternal terms. Far more significant, far more important. It describes here the pivotal moment. This is about seven years after the church began on the day of Pentecost. But the gospel finally broke out of the uh, Jewish confines and into the non-Jewish world for the first time. See, the toothpaste is now out of the tube and there's no getting it back into the tube again. A fortnight ago, Michael preached on two jaw-dropping miracles in Acts chapter 9. He talked about the healing of a paralyzed man and the raising to life of a dead woman. Amazing scenes. It must have been just awesome to be there. But Luke devotes just 10 verses to those two extraordinary incidents, while this one takes up 66 verses, which gives you an idea of how important Luke felt this story to be. That's how big a deal this is in Acts chapter 10 and 11. See, this is the moment where Christianity goes global. Acts 10 is the giant leap, if you like, that would transform the lives of billions of people over thousands of years, people like you and me. I think most of us, I expect here, are Gentiles. And all because of one small step taken by two guys, Peter and Cornelius. Well, let's say a little bit more about these two men, Peter and Cornelius. Peter is a minimally educated fisherman with a small business in Galilee, northern Israel. He has grown up as an Orthodox Jew with very strict rules about who you associate with, what you eat, what you wear, when you work, and who you worship. Very strict. Everything in Peter's mind has to be put in um, 
a category. Is it clean or is it unclean? Is it kosher or is it unkosher? That's the way he thinks from birth. He's learned that from being a small boy. And it's been ingrained into him that his people are set apart from and are different to everybody else on the face of the earth. But unlearning something is always much more difficult than learning something. Have you noticed that? Unlearning something is always much harder than learning it in the first place. In chapter 9, Peter has no bother at all in dealing with severe disability and death because he's learned how to deal with both by walking with Jesus for three years. But in chapter 10, he flinches at the very idea of touching an unclean animal or eating forbidden food because it goes against everything he's ever learned all his life. And in fact, it takes five miracles in this story, a vision, an angelic appearance, a trance, an audible voice of God, and an impossible coincidence before he reluctantly agrees to enter the home of a non-Jew and meet with him. And significantly, it's in Joppa, the coastal town of Joppa, that this happens. This is the port, remember, where 800 years earlier, Jonah ran away from his calling to go to the Gentiles. This time it's in Joppa where Peter accepts the very same mission. So that's Peter. What about Cornelius? Well, he's an officer in the Roman army. He's not a Jew. He is a pork-eating, uncircumcised, temple-excluded, Sabbath-working Gentile. But the Bible says here he is devout. He loves God, as does his household. He's generous to the poor. And he says his prayers every day to a God he hardly knows. He's drawn to the God of the Jews. He sees they've got something about them that is attractive to him. The big surprise to many is that Cornelius, despite all his uprightness, despite his good works, despite his charity, all his prayers, he is not actually a child of God. See, Cornelius shows that you can have fear of God but still not be a friend of God. You can be sincere, but still not saved. I wonder if any of us today are like Cornelius. We're basically supportive. We think this is great, but actually we're still looking in from the outside. Is that you? Or is that someone very close to you? Well, I've got three points I want to make today. And first of all, I want to say this, that God loves to reveal himself to anyone who earnestly seeks him. God loves that. Jesus said this, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will eventually be opened to you. Everyone who asks, Jesus says, receives. Everyone who seeks, who goes on seeking, everyone finds in the end. And to everyone who knocks, keeps knocking, the door will 
be opened. And the world has many people like Cornelius, uh, that kind-hearted, good-natured, hard-working, living a good life, doing the right thing, even praying to a God they don't yet really know. Loads of people like this in the world. The good news is that God just delights to reveal himself to those who never stop pursuing him with their whole heart, people like Cornelius. Are you still searching for God? Because God really wants to be found by you, if you do. I watched a YouTube video not long ago um, about a singer called Lacey Sturm. Hadn't heard of her before. She's from a band called Flyleaf. And in this video, she talks about years of struggle and unhappiness in her life. She says, I could not get away from my own depression. She got into various religions and she tried different philosophies and she looked everywhere she could for answers, searching, seeking. She looked everywhere, in fact, apart from Jesus. And she said this, there were all these ideas, but I never found any tangible healing. She said, I remember thinking, I'm tired, tired of the pain in my heart. I am tired of going to bed and feeling this burden. Who am I? Why am I alive? She was on a restless and relentless quest for truth. And one day she woke up despairing that she would ever find release. And she decided that she was going to take her life that day, by the end of the day. But that evening, by the grace of God, her grandmother, with whom she lived at the time, said to her, Lacey, you are coming to church with me now. And Lacey says, I didn't want to go to church. I despised it. I never went. But look, I'm going to commit suicide later. It cannot get any worse than that, so I might as well go. So she went. And I wish I could tell you that she thought it was amazing. She had a good experience there, but she said, no, I hated it, especially the preacher. But as this preacher was speaking, he had a whisper from the Lord. He interrupted his own sermon. And he said, I think there's someone here tonight with a suicidal spirit. Well, that got her attention. But she hated everything else he said. So much that she stood up and she started to walk out and to leave. And as she approached the exit door at the back of this church, a man with a white goatee beard walked over to her and said, I think the Lord wants me to say something to you. So she thought, here we go again. And he said, this, God wants you to know that even if you've never known your earthly father, which you haven't actually. Microphone here. He said, God knows your pain 
and will be a better father to you than any man could have been. He said, God knows what's in your heart. He has seen you cry yourself to sleep. And he wants to come and deal with it now. He is called the comforter, one of his titles, he said. And Lacey Sturm says this, it was as if the God of the universe showed up right in front of me. I realized that God is holy and good and that I am not. And that he loves me and he knows I'm tired of the way I've been living and that he wants to make me new if I would let him. And I said, yes, I want that, please. She said, I woke up the next day alive with incredible peace and such joy. Acts chapter 10 shows us that God loves to reveal himself to people like Cornelius and Peter and Lacey when they're willing to unlearn everything they have learned. See, God says in Jeremiah 29, in those days, he says, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you. It's God speaking. According to a report on Al Jazeera news a few years ago, 16 thousand Muslims convert to Christ in the Middle East every day. Awesome, isn't it? I don't know who did that research or how accurate the data is, but that's what I said on Al Jazeera, which is a reputable news source in the Middle East. Conservative estimates have been made that every day in China, China, 20,000 seekers find new life in Christ. That's a lot of people who are sincerely pursuing truth and seeking God. And that's a lot of people who God is graciously revealing himself to. Right, the second thing I want us to see here in Acts chapter 10 is simply this, that religion is useless. Religion is useless. Now, Karl Marx used to say that religion is, is like a drug. It's the opium of the masses. It just numbs you to everything else. But I want to say this, that no book, even books by Karl Marx, no book is more contemptuous of empty, monotonous religion than this book is, the Bible. See, it surprises people to learn that God doesn't actually like religion. Jesus didn't like religion. They crucified him because he wasn't religious enough. This is what God says in Isaiah 1. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. And in Isaiah 29, he said this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up only of rules taught by men. Uh, soon after I became a Christian, back in 1979, my sister gave me a book as a present. And it was called The Lion Handbook of World Religions. 
right? And she wrote on the inside cover, inside cover, this is to you, John, because you can never be sure, she said, if you've chosen the right one. Well, it was very thoughtful of her, and I'm not ungrateful, to be honest, but she didn't get it, and she still doesn't, incidentally. You see, I've got absolutely no interest in religion whatsoever. I don't want to belong to a religion. And it might seem weird to some people, as I've been a Christian for decades now, but I've never once in all that time considered myself religious. And I have to correct people when they say, oh, John, you, you like religion, don't you? I don't. I really don't like religion at all. See, religion is about, it's all about the many different ways that people try to reach God. But Jesus is the one way that God has reached us. That's the difference. I'm interested in Jesus, not religion. See, religion says you've got to bathe in this particular river. That's what you need to do. It says you mustn't eat certain foods or you mustn't drink any alcohol. That's religion. It says you've got to fast at certain times and for a certain length of time. It says this particular building or that particular shrine is so special, you have to go there at least once in your lifetime. It's special. It says, you males, you've got to be circumcised. Just no. Thank you very much. I'm not interested. It says, you have to adopt a certain posture when you pray. It says, you mustn't cut your hair. It says, you must cut your hair. It says, you've got to face in a certain direction to pray. Otherwise, it's not acceptable. It says, wear a turban or wear a skull cap or wear a full-length robe that covers everything but your eyes. But none of this stuff frees anybody who is weighed down by guilt or trapped in their addiction. It doesn't change hearts. Religion doesn't bring life. But Jesus does. Now, Peter's strange vision in verses 9 to 16 is all about him needing to leave his useless religion and to leave it behind. See, up until that time, for Peter, belonging to God meant, amongst other things, obsessing about what he could and could not eat. And Jesus had already told him a few years earlier that the only things that make people unclean come from within, come from the heart. Things like hatred and envy and jealousy and lies and rage. But as I said earlier, unlearning things is always so much harder than learning them. And the proof of that is in verse 14, where having had this just extraordinary spiritual experience Peter has had, He's actually heard the audible voice of God. Peter says here, no way, Lord. I'm not eating that. That's against my religion, Lord. I've always lived this way. Basically what Peter says in verse 14. And God had to tell him the same thing three times, which must have rung a bell for him. See, at the cross, Jesus made clean everything that had previously been impure 
And in doing so, he abolished forever useless, ceremonial, tedious religion. Thank God. You haven't got to be slavishly bound to endless rituals and routines. It's over. Christ sets you free. And the third thing I find in this passage is this. The wonderful news that Jesus has decisively removed every barrier between all people. It's just so beautiful. You see, in Christ, God has no favorites. There is no advantage or disadvantage in being rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female, or leave or remain, black or white, right or left leaning, young or old. There's no advantage or disadvantage in either. See, every racial, national, sociological, political, psychological, and ecclesiastical dividing wall has been pulled down by Jesus Christ at the cross. And one of the things I love about Acts chapter 10 is how God in his sovereignty, weaves the story of these two individuals, totally incompatible individuals, into one story. They don't know each other at this point. They have virtually nothing in common. They would naturally have avoided each other in their lives, their worlds never really overlap at all. One hour before Peter meets the men in verse 21, one hour beforehand, he would not have touched them with a barge pole. He would never enter a Gentile home, even to shelter from the worst storm ever. But in verse 23, he invites them in and he offers them hospitality. It's amazing how God brings barriers down. Amy Orr Ewing, the uh, author and evangelist, once talked about the day her atheist MP was a guest at the church she goes to. And this um, MP absolutely loved it there. And this is what he said. I've got his quote here. Wow, he said, this is the only place in my constituency where such diverse people get together. You've got old people, young people, singles, couples, families, wealthy people, and those of modest means, the well-educated and the barely literate, the able-bodied and the disabled, people of every political persuasion and none. You just don't see that anywhere else. And then he said this, it's just a pity about the God bit. But the God bit is not incidental. That's pathetic saying it's just a pity about the God bit. It's a bit like saying, I love this cake. It's just a pity about the eggs and the sugar and the butter and the flour. Jesus brings people together and he breaks down all the barriers. Jesus shows the world what community is like. Amen? And so as I draw to a close... Um, let me ask you this. Are you still searching for God? You may have been searching for God all your life. Why don't you let your quest 
for God, however long it's been, why don't you let that quest become a conclusion today? Or like Cornelius and Peter, have you been missing out on the full freedom of the grace of God in your life? So Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to die painfully on a cross just to add a little bit of religion to our lives. He came to set you free and to give you life in abundance. Is that what you're experiencing right now? Life in abundance? He said this, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink and rivers of living water will flow from within them. Is that your experience, honestly? And if it isn't, do you think it should be? And finally this, this is a challenge. Is there a barrier in your life between you and someone different to you? Do you need to renounce a prejudice that you have against somebody else? Bring it to God today. Repent of it. And watch how your Christian life goes to the next level when you do. Jesus has made it possible for all the barriers to come down between us and others. Thank the Lord for that. The band wants to come forward. We're going to respond to God and what he said to us, what his word has said to us in a few moments. Just take a moment to, to let those... Um, Challenges at the end soak into us. How does God want me to respond to what I've heard today? What is God saying to me?